You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, good morning, Harvest fam. How are we doing today? Good. Some of us are good. How are we doing today? Okay, we're still good, I guess. I'll take it at this point. Hey, good to see you all here. It's uh, so good. It's always so good not to... uh, not to just sing that song, which is amazing. I love it. It gets me every single time and just stirs my heart. But it's so good to see you as our, uh, as our Markham fam. That's how we refer to you in, uh, in Newmarket. So great to see old friends and friendly faces and the banter and the prayer that you guys bring uh, to me and, uh, or for me and for our church is just so, uh, so needed and just so appreciated. And so it always feels like uh, coming home to come here. And so, uh, again, love this. Looking forward to what God has for us here today. And now if you would... Grab your Bible. If you've got a copy of God's Word, grab it and turn to Mark chapter 12. All right, and as you're getting yourself turned there, uh, we are going to work through the entire thing, by the way. I believe, I believe that we can do this uh, through the power of the Spirit. Uh, but again, as you're getting yourself situated there, have you noticed that as, as people, as, you know, as a culture, whatever, however you want to put this, uh, we love a good showdown, right? We do. We love a, a battle, you know, of, of, of who's best or, or what's best. Some of you are, you know, maybe competitive and you like, to, you like to win, you like to compete against other people. Well, again, we see this pop up in our culture. We love, uh, we love a good showdown. We got a couple of pictures here to, uh, to kind of illustrate this. Let's get the first one up there right now. Have you seen this? Right? Coke versus Pepsi. You guys remember back in the, I don't know, was it the 80s or the 90s where they had those, that taste test challenge thing and you'd blindfold yourself and drink and decide which one was the best? Some of you... Um, you, have your, you have your preference. I'm like a club soda guy, so like I'm not at all helpful in this battle, I don't think. Um, but what about the second one? Yeah, remember these commercials? This is kind of old school too, but the, uh, the Apple ver- or the Mac versus PC thing. And uh, some of us are like massive, huge Apple fans, iPhone fans. The rest of us are, are wrong, okay? That's really all there is to say about that. How about the next one? Yeah, Matthew's... Versus McDavid. I mean, as a, I'm a Leaf fan, so it kind of pains me to say this, but I think we got to give the edge to uh, to McDavid on this one. There's a there's a battle apparently these two teams on Wednesday night, but uh, but that's that's one we love a good showdown that way. How about this final one here? I don't know. Does this one translate for you guys? Ford versus Chevy. Uh, being from Newmarket, uh, we're very close to Keswick, so um, we got a lot of people from Keswick in our church, and they love them some pickup truck, I'm going to tell you. And so this one, when I preached this in our church, this was like people like throwing chairs at this point, right? They were so upset about this, Ford versus Chevy. But listen, all of us, no matter what um, it is for us, we probably, I mean, you can pick your preference on these things, right? For you, it's like, ah, I just prefer this over that. Or for you, it's, uh, you know, verifiable, you know, evidence to suggest that Chevy is better than Ford or... Apple over PC or what have you. Well, listen, Mark uh, chapter 12 presents us with a showdown of epic proportions. All right, the Jewish religious leaders uh, in uh, in Israel, they'd been trying, uh, you know, all the way through uh, the the gospel of Mark, they've been trying to get at Jesus. They've been trying to trap him. They've been trying to, to trick him. They've confronted him. They've questioned his authority. They've done all of that over and over again. Actually, it starts in in, uh, in chapter 2, and in chapter 12 now, it all kind of comes to a head, and we've got this, this showdown that just happens here, right? They all kind of take their run at Jesus, but Jesus pushes back, 
I mean, he does, and he, he kind of confronts and he exposes those ugly roots of pride that are in their hearts and that's kept them from truly knowing God. And, and beyond that, it's, it's that pride that had caused them to lead this entire nation uh, away from the Lord. Now, hey, just as, as Christ confronts the pride of the religious leaders here, listen, he'll go after ours as well. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that in your own walk? Okay, so the question really for each of us is this. Will we let him? You're going to let him come after you? You're going to let him uh, win that showdown with your pride? Or listen, are you going to like entrench yourself in it? Are you going to say, you know, you know what? I'm going to fight against him. I'm going to dig my, my heels in here. I'm going to fight back against the Lord. I am not going to bow my knee. I am not going to soften my heart. I'm not going to invite him to transform and change me. I'm going to go after him. Listen, if that is your game plan, if that's what you're bringing in here with you here this morning, let me just tell you, bad plan. A bad plan for us as the church. It's always, always good for us to realize that in a showdown with our pride, Jesus wins. Listen, he's going to win that. He's going to win it. He's either going to win it today. He's going to win it eventually. Uh, so we might as well give ourselves to him. Listen, we want to do that right now through prayer. So why don't you join me as we just invite the Lord to do what he needs to do uh, here in our hearts here today. Lord, we thank you again for just the time of worship that we've already had. Lord, we've got to you know, remind our hearts and our minds that, uh, that you are good, Lord, that you have called us to know you, that, uh, that you have um, equipped us to go and share the gospel and Lord, it's that same gospel that we want to settle our hearts and our minds on here today, Lord. It's the gospel that exhumes the sin that's in our hearts, Lord. It unearths the pride that is there. And Lord, I pray for anybody right now who is just stubbornly refusing to bow the knee, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, as you know how, Lord, that you would get after that, Lord. You would, you would crack that, that hard, icy layer of our hearts, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord. It's so... Um, so easy for us to go down that path, Lord. Some of us here are, are wrestling with the day-to-day -day battle of sin, and, and we know that we've got pride there, but we just can't, we can't see it all, Lord. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would show us where it's there, Lord, and I pray that you would soften us and lead us towards repentance here today. God, I pray that, um, that our pride would be crushed. I pray that we would leave here today experiencing forgiveness and newness of life in Christ. We pray all of this in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we go. We're jumping right into it here. First thing in your notes. Okay, in a showdown with my pride, Jesus wins. Okay? And even when it seems like I've won, I've actually lost. Okay, now take a look at this here in verse 1. Okay, it says this, speaking of Jesus, and he began to speak to them. Okay, who's, who's the them here? Well, it's the religious leaders. Okay? In, in chapter 11, they had just questioned uh, his authority, and so they are kind of mounting their charge and starting to pick up steam, and they're coming after him. And like I said, this has been happening all the way along throughout the gospel of, of Mark here, and it's about to, I mean, it's about to go down. Okay? And so Jesus, it says that he began to speak to them uh, in parables. All right, now what's a parable? Well, a parable, pretty simply put, it's, it's just a simple story to illustrate a spiritual truth. Okay? And, and Jesus taught a lot in parables, and uh, that's what he did. Now, it also, it, call, it also actually accomplished two different things. It was like a two-pronged attack uh, when it came to how Jesus used parables. First of all, uh, it was, they, were, they were designed to help the soft-hearted understand. 
Okay, the soft-hearted would understand spiritual truths, things about the kingdom of God as Jesus taught in parables. As we, bring, as we come to the Lord in humility, uh, he would teach and he would give understanding. But listen, the flip side to all of that, the other side of the coin, is that it would also keep the hard-hearted from understanding. Right? And so the religious leaders here, they were coming with hard hearts. And so Jesus spoke in parables in some ways to keep them from understanding and to teach those who were ready and willing and soft-hearted and ready to listen uh, to understand, okay? And so that's what parables were. He began to speak to them in parables, and this is what he said. He said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants or managers, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant, <clears throat> sorry, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and, and him, or, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what's, what's Jesus doing here by sharing this parable at this time? Well, what he's doing is he's essentially telling the story of, of Israel's pride. All right? He, you know, the vineyard here was, was how God referred to the Jews. We see that in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. God calls them his, his vineyard. All right, so in the parable, as the man planted the vineyard, so had God chosen Israel to be his people. As the man had put tenants in place as overseers, so had God placed, you know, uh, priests and, and, and judges and, and kings to be leaders over Israel. As the man sent servants to the vineyard who were beaten and mocked and, and killed by the tenants, God had sent prophets who had sent, uh, had experienced similar fates. Okay, all of that is, is their past. All of that is Israel's history. Okay, then what Jesus does here is he's, he goes on to explain what's happening like, like now in their current situation. What would happen in their very near future? Right? As the beloved, or as the vineyard owner rather, sent his beloved son to the tenants and they, they killed him in an attempt to, to gain control and to gain power and have the, have the inheritance and all of that, God was sending his son, right, who would also be shamefully treated and killed. All right, and so Jesus is sharing this here as, as, as a foreshadowing of what you and I know would happen very, very shortly. Right, he would be led away. He would be, he would be crucified. And so from one angle, at least at one point here, uh, the pride of, uh, of Israel and, and Israel's leaders here, it kind of seems to win, doesn't it? Right? They, they you know, they, they, they kill Jesus. Right? They win the showdown, it, it kind of seems like. Right? Temporarily, everything looked pretty bleak. Right? On, on Good Friday, you know, as, as we gather as the church, we think about Christ's death and we often put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and, and we try to picture how they would have felt thinking like, man, it's over, right? Jesus is in the grave and, and they're just questioning everything, right? At one point, everything temporarily at least all seemed pretty bleak. 
But notice what he says here next in verse 9. He says, what will, the, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and, and give the vineyards to others. Meaning that there, there will be judgment. Oh, you better believe that's coming, right? Their pride, their sin, that's, that's going to be crushed. That's going to be dealt with. And it says he's going to give the vineyard to, to others. Meaning that if, if Israel's going to harden their hearts and they're not going to accept it, guess what? We'll take the message of the gospel to, to the Gentiles. We'll give it to them. So again, even though optically, for a moment, it seemed like pride had won. You know, Jesus died. You know, he lost. Right? We know that it wasn't actually over. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. God, that God would conquer sin. He, 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 would, he would conquer that, that pride. His, his plan to save and redeem people, that's not going to be hindered. Right? It's not going to be stopped at all. This is all really happening according to God's plan. God, God foreordained this. I mean, take a look at it in verse, verse 10. He says, have you not read the scripture? And then he refers to Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected, so the stone being Jesus, the builders being Israel, right? The stone that, that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone, right? the, the, the foundation of, of the Messianic kingdom. Jesus has become the foundation of, uh, and he has become salvation uh, for all. It says there that this was the Lord's doing, all of this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So through this parable, Jesus is saying, listen, your, your pride has blinded you. It looks like you're getting the upper hand here and you're fighting, fighting against me. It's even going to look like that in the, in, in the near future here as I'm led away, as I'm arrested and, and as I'm killed. But listen, this is all falling into place exactly as my father set it all up. Right? It's all happening perfectly. Hey, but note their response. Rather than receiving this and rather than understanding and having their eyes opened and, and falling in brokenness and repentance before their God, it says this, verse 12, it says, and they were seeking to arrest him. Right? They just doubled down on it. it said, but they feared the people, though. They feared the crowds and they didn't want to lose the support of the people. And then it says this, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Right, in the hardness of the heart, they don't, they don't understand. Right? They, they don't get it, but they have some kind of inkling that this was against them. They're like, I don't think we come out looking very good in the story that Jesus just shared. Right? They, have a, they have a sense of it, but they don't quite get it exactly. Now listen, the point would be, it would be really easy for us to be like, man, these guys are a bunch of clowns. Right? Like, what are they doing? They should just open their eyes. They should just, under, they should just understand. But listen, the, po the point here is not for us to just tee off in the pride of Israel's leaders. The, the, the point isn't here to, to condemn them. The point is to look at ourselves. Right, what, what about our pride? What about, what about our sin? What, you know, what about our hearts? Where are they at? How is, how is our behavior, you know, and, and, and all of it creating this showdown between us and the Lord right now? Maybe there's some area of pride in your life that the Lord is just kind of beginning to point out to you. It's been the couple, last couple days or weeks or whatever. Maybe it's even as you're sitting here. And the Lord's like, hey, listen, this isn't, this isn't okay. And it's been that conviction and your eyes are starting to, to open in that there, but you haven't quite relented, right? You haven't quite softened your heart to it yet. Maybe for you, it's been just years. It could be, it could be decades of just giving into pride. And through that, your, your mind has become so warped and so manipulated by your sinful flesh. And yet on the outside, you still come to church. 
You, you know the scriptures. You know how to pray all the prayers. But you're far from him. In all of it, you're so... You're convinced you're right. You're convinced that it's not really a big deal. I'm just having this one... It's just this one area. It's okay if I have my way in, in this one spot. Listen, you need to understand this. Pride is such a deceptive slippery, sneaky thing. It will, it will wrap you up and squeeze the life out of you. It really will. We can become so fooled by it. We can become so callous to it to the point, again, where it actually seems like my way is best. No, I'm, I'm right to think this. I'm right to act or not act in this way. This is exactly what I want to do, so I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm correct. You can kind of have the sense, like, I'm winning here in the game of life in terms of following Christ. But listen, when we're entrenched in that pride, and you need to know, we, we never win, ever, ever. We only lose one way or the other. Now, you might be thinking, well, how, how do we lose, or, or what kinds of things do we lose? We've got four things for you. They'll be on the screen. Four things we lose when we give into pride. Okay, four things. Here's the first one. Intimacy with God. Okay, we lose intimacy with God. I love James chapter four, verse eight. This is what it says. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's that intimacy. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see that as we deal with the sin, the pride that's there, the double-mindedness that's there, the Lord draws near to us. How awesome is that? You, you gain intimacy when you deal with your pride. You give in to pride. You lose all of it. You cannot hold on to pride and have a close relationship with God. Do you know that? We all want it both ways though, don't we? Somewhere in our hearts. We want like one foot in pride. We want one foot in following the Lord. You can't do that. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Stop trying. Stop playing that game. It's a losing battle. You lose intimacy with God. Here's the next thing you lose. Intimacy with the church. I love Acts chapter 2, verses 44. In that little section there, it's where the church is just starting to gather and they're meeting together in homes and they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and all of that. I love this. It says, all who believed were together. You see that? There's that unity. There's that intimacy there. Togetherness, right? They were together and had all things in common. Hey, listen, if you have pride that you're not dealing with, your pride essentially places you on the throne of your life where you're king and where you will automatically begin to think that other people exist to serve you. Other people exist to make my life better. Other people exist to make me more comfortable instead of the other way around. And listen, as you give in to pride, that intimacy with the church and the relationships that you have with people, they'll never be what they what they could be, what they should be, what God's called us to. Third thing we lose when we give into pride is soul-level satisfaction. Soul-level satisfaction. That's like that deep, heart-level joy in the presence with the Lord. Psalm 107, George read from some of it earlier. This is what verse 9 says. It says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Right? Some of you are just like, you know what, I'd rather give in to pride. I'm having fun with this. And let's call a spade a spade. Sin is fun. Okay, for, for, for a short season anyways. Maybe for a longer season than short. 
But listen, pride always, eventually, ultimately turns into misery. It becomes, it's a bitter pill that we swallow. Some of us are so all about just happiness, a surface level happiness. We've bought into the world's mantra about that. I just want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. God has so much more for you. He has joy for you. Pride will bring a little bit of fleeting happiness. He wants to bring soul satisfaction, joy that's deeper, that's found in him. Here's the fourth thing we lose when we give into pride. It's mission success. Mission success. What's the mission? Make disciples. Right? Make disciples. That's not just for pastor guys. Right? That's for all of us. You get called into a relationship with Jesus Christ, boom, you're on mission. Hey, what's my life all about? I wish I had some purpose. You have purpose. It's right there. Write down Matthew 28. Start reading that. That's what Jesus says. I love this too from 1 Peter 2 verse 9. It says, but you were a chosen race. This is us. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may, here it is, here's the mission, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right there it is. Right, if we, if we give in to pride, Okay, making disciples, which is the purpose of all of our lives, all of that just slows to a crawl, it grinds to a halt. Here's the thing about any four of these things, so many professing Christians could care less if they lose any of them. Like, oh, I lose intimacy with God, I'm actually okay with that. Because I like kind of calling the shots, and I like to pretend that I'm a solid Christ follower by going to church, but they're rather six days a week, I'm doing whatever I want. I look, I look more like the world than anything. I, I, I don't mind that I'm losing relationships with the church because let's be honest, these people are super messed up. It's actually a valid point. Right? We all are. We're all, we're all broken. We're broken people rallying around a perfect savior and finding healing and unity within that. Some of us are so willing to give that up though. We think that being on our own and isolating ourselves is better. Don't give that up. That's pride. We're good with losing soul satisfaction for mere happiness we don't care about the mission. We'd rather just prop up our own game plan and our own desires and, and pursue those. Listen, it's sad. It's, it's pathetic when you think about it. And it's pride. If you've got any of that, if any of these things you could live without, pride is governing you somewhere. It is. Let God have the upper hand here. Let him win that showdown with your pride. Fight that lie that you somehow win when you give in to what you want. Okay, it's a lie. You only lose. Here's the second thing. In a showdown with my pride, Jesus wins by dismantling my hypocrisy, arrogance, and self-righteousness. Now watch here. On one hand, it's actually entertaining, but it's, it teaches us and instructs us. Jesus, I mean, he just, he absolutely picks these guys apart, right? He just dismantles them, their logic, their thinking. He exhumes the pride that's in their hearts here. It's this long-awaited showdown that's been boiling and brewing and stirring uh, for so long, and it's all with the Sanhedrin. And maybe thinking, like, who's the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was, was the religious council made up of a few different groups, okay? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and the scribes. And we'll explain a little bit just who those guys were uh, as we go here. Now, these guys, they don't even really get along, they all have differences theologically and, and, and their goals are slightly different, but it's like this gang mentality and all this gang up and, you know, we're all, we have the same common enemy, so let's all band together and go after him. And so they all come take their shots. Here it goes, verse 13. 
Here's what they do first. They sent to him some of the Pharisees. So Pharisees are first up. The Pharisees were like the religious progressives uh, of their day. It says that they sent the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Well, who are those guys? Well, they were basically this political party that wanted Herod as ruler. It's like, what do they have to do with anything? I don't know. You guys hate Jesus too? Yeah, come on in. It's like this. It's just it's like starting a street fight. Like that's what this is. They'll take anybody who can yield a weapon of some kind. So the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, they send those guys to trap him in his talk. Keep going. It says, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, can you tell by the way that I'm saying that? That yes, what they're saying technically is true. But it's not actually actually coming from a sincere heart, right? This is, this is insincere flattery. They're just, they're trying to butter him up. They're trying to get him to, to, to let his guard down a little bit so that they can, they can strike. And so here's what they say. They ask him a question. Keep going. It says this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And the intent here is to trap Jesus and force him into, this, into a lose-lose situation with no matter how he answers they win, he loses. That's what they're going for here. Where, where if he's pro-taxation, like, yeah, you should pay your taxes. Hopefully he'll lose the support of the people now who are going to think, well, hold on a second. The Roman authorities, they're, they're oppressing us and they, they require too much tax. And so they're hoping that he maybe answers that way. Or if he answers in an anti-taxation type response, what's going to happen? Well, he'll have the Roman authorities against him and coming after him. And so again, they're like, you know, However you answer, it doesn't matter to us. We win, you lose. But, verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, which is a form of pride, he said to them, why put me to the test? And then he gives an object lesson here. Bring me a denarius, which is a day's wage, and and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. Caesar's face was on the coin. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, okay? Which shows that he's not anti-government. Pay your taxes. And here it is, to God the things that are God's. And it says that they marveled at him. Now they marveled at him. That seems like a really great response. But notice how it doesn't say, oh, they were humble and broken and repented of their pride. Okay, they didn't do that. Which again shows that they completely missed the point that Jesus was trying to make here. Right, the coin bears Caesar's image. So give him what's his. And who bears God's image? They do. Right? So in other words, give him yourselves. Give your lives to him. Surrender to him. Humble yourselves. Give your, give your heart over to the Lord. You bear his image. Stop resisting him through your pride and through your hypocrisy here. It's amazing how the Lord just worked his way through what for us would be a very tricky question. Now, verse 18, the Sadducees have been waiting on deck. They've been licking their chops. Here we go. And the Sadducees came to him, and they were the religious conservatives of their day. Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now, kind of put a pin in that word. We're going to come back to that. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, and they're referring to Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25. Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offerings, uh, offspring for his brother. 
Now, this was a custom um, called leveret marriage. All right, the intention here uh, being uh, was, it was to care for uh, the widow, right, and preserve the, the brother's family line, right? And so if, if, if a man's sister-in-law was alone now, she was a widow because her husband died, he would take her as his wife and he would try uh, to uh, have children with her. Okay, it was to care for uh, the marginalized and the needy, all right? Now, verse 20, take a look. This is what they say. They say, that there were seven brothers. You see how they're trying to complicate this. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, which again, they don't believe in, right? They're referring to heaven here and the afterlife. In the resurrection, when they rise again, and they're kind of like, what a joke. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now they're trying to confuse, they're trying to to confound Jesus, obviously not realizing that he is God, right? By presenting him with with the difficulty of trying to decide which one of the seven men would be given to this woman in marriage in heaven and to prove that their belief that the afterlife and that heaven was, was nonsense, Okay, but just watch here how he just dismantles their flawed logic. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Right? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Meaning that, that, that heaven is a, is a completely new and, and different reality for those of us of faith. Okay, you can't... You can't say that just because there are important laws around marriage here on earth that they all apply in the exact same way in heaven. He says that marriage doesn't even exist in heaven. Okay, so he pulls that all apart. And then verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, he goes after that now, have you not read in the book of Moses? You understand that is an absolute shot across the bow against the Sadducees, right? Because these guys not only... They not only read the book of Moses, but they, they had it memorized, right? They knew it from a very young age. They claimed to be total and complete experts in, this, in these scriptures. And here he's asking them, have you, have, have you guys even read it before? Like, what a joke, right? He says this, in the passage about the bush, referring to Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him, saying, he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So it's to say here that God is, he, he, he's currently the God of these men, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had long since died by the time God was saying this to Moses. I wasn't just the God when they were alive. I am their God. Meaning there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. Heaven is real. Like, haven't, you even, haven't you even read the scriptures? It's like, this is crazy. You, you are quite wrong. Right? It's not a, it's not a false concept. It, it, heaven is a reality. It's taught in the very scriptures that you guys claim to be pros in. Right? They tried to ambush Jesus and expose what they thought was the false doctrine here. But once again, Jesus just reveals the pride oozing out of them, coming out of their pores, right? The form of their arrogance. You don't know the scriptures. 
it's a reminder to us, you go up against the Lord in your pride. You're getting it taken apart, right? Dismantled. Now verse 28, next up, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, don't, don't you kind of want to, like, if you, if you were there at the scene, wouldn't you want to sort of work your way in behind Jesus where you'd catch eyes with the scribe and just be like, don't do it, buddy. Like, you were going to get taken to the woodshed here. Right? But actually, in this case, it's a little bit different. The, the scribe here is, is genuinely asking a question, which I think is a really good reminder to us to not just universally sweep all the religious leaders here into the same category. Some of them did have soft hearts. He, he wanted to know. And there are a number of others. Nicodemus, one Jesus had conversation with. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave the tomb for Jesus' body to be laid in. He was on the council. He was a disciple of Christ. Right? Some of them, some of them genuinely wanted to know and had softer hearts. And here's how Jesus answers this question. Verse 29, it says, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Right, This scribe, he gets it far better than the others. And again, he's got this softness and he wants to know, yet, yet there's still, he's still kind of stuck in his, in his ignorance. It still hasn't quite clicked yet. He still doesn't understand. There's still some self-righteous pride in him that's, that's keeping him from, from just bending his knee and giving his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Right? He still doesn't quite get it. And then it just finishes off there. It says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Yeah, I guess so. Now, verse 35, it says this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes, not that one in particular guy, but in general, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the the Messiah, is the son of David? And what what he's asking here is, you know, why do the scribes say that that the Messiah is merely a a physical descendant of David? Everyone knew that the Messiah was going to come from the bloodline of David. They were just saying he was going to be that, and and that's it. Okay, keep going. It says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him, that's the Messiah, calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is to say that the Messiah is the Lord of David, not just his descendant. And God has given the Messiah a position of honor at his right hand, to overcome his enemies. Which is exactly what he's doing here in the utter dismantling of the Sanhedrin's pride. Right? They tried their best. They came at him with everything that they had, but they just leave licking their wounds. Let's recognize here that the scribe, this one scribe who who comes to him and shows a genuine desire to know and to understand, he's dealt with far less severely than the rest of them which should be an inspiration, motivation to us to bring our pride in the different, the different forms, the different way that it comes out, bring our pride to him, whether it's the hypocrisy, right, of, of kind of claiming to be a Christian, but 
living maybe more like the world than, than unlike it. We're so hypocritical. It's bringing our, our arrogance, just that overbearing demeanor that we have towards one another, that we have towards the world sometimes, that, that self-assuredness where we think, you know, I don't need the Lord and I can keep him at arm's length. That judgmentalism towards other people, just that lack of grace, that lack of mercy and love, that inflated sense of our own self-importance. It's all arrogance. It's pride. We should be encouraged to bring in the self-righteousness, right? All of that where we, we just think we're better than we really are. We fail to see our sin for what it is. We love pointing out other people's sin. But we don't want to point out our own. We don't want to face that. We should be, again, urged, encouraged, motivated, to bring all of it of our own volition and place it at the foot of the cross, right? Bring it before Jesus. Lord, would you, would you take this and fix it? Would you forgive me? Would you heal me? Listen, you can't problem solve your way out of your pride. You can't fix that by behaving a certain way, behaving better. You're not fooling the Lord in all of that. Bring it to him. He's the only one that can fix it. Show a softness, show a willingness to do this. You need forgiveness. You need a changed heart, right? Better to do that in your own volition than, than, than having him dismantle it in a disciplinary type way, right? Some of us have been through that. I've been through that. It's a painful process, feeling the heavy-handedness of the Lord in our lives. It's a showdown that, listen, we just can't hope to win ever, ever. Right, here's the last thing. In a showdown with my pride, Jesus wins, enabling me to truly surrender my all to him. Hey, take a look at verse 38 here. He says, and in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and greetings in the marketplace, and like long, uh, greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. So he uses the scribes here as an example of how pride just causes them, really, it's to be all about themselves. Right? They wear this ornate clothing to stand out. Look at me. You know, look how great I am. They love to be fawned over. They love, they love the seat of honor. They're harsh. They're demanding. They're cruel to others. They pray these long, showy prayers no humble surrender to God. For them, it's just me, me, me. He says that they'll receive the greater condemnation. They'll be condemned for it. But then 41, look at this, verse 41. It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they, had, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay, Jesus' point here is that this woman, in her, in her poverty, she's the one that, that displays true surrender. Right? The scribes weren't interested in that. They were just in, interested in, in personal advancement. It was pride. But in this woman, we see humility, we see, we see surrender, and, and in faith, she just gives, she gives absolutely everything to God, everything that she has, right? It's this act of radical generosity. She's just like, Lord, Lord, take my life. 
Lord, you have me. You have my heart. You have my, my everything. And this is the act that Christ makes much of. Right? You see this here. It's such a stark contrast versus everything we just read from the beginning here, looking at the religious council. Now listen, I understand. I know that, that there's some people in here that, I mean, you want this for yourself you see the example of this woman and you're like, oh, that this would be my heart. And, and you sense that deep down somewhere, but you're fighting it, right? And, and, and pride's there and you're having the conversation. You're at war right now in your seat. And I don't know if I want to give this up. I don't know if I really want to change. Part of me, absolutely, I want that, but it might be painful. It might be messy to do so. Listen, I would urge us here today and challenge us that it's the gospel that enables. It's the gospel that motivates us to truly surrender our everything to the Lord. I mean, just think about your salvation right now. Think about your testimony and your life lived before you got saved and how you were just chasing after the world. You were all about yourselves, yourself. It was, it was, it was misery, really. And how in, the, in, that, in that moment, all of a sudden, your, your spiritual eyes were opened and you realize, wow, forgiveness is available through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he suffered and died. It was so that God would, would pour out his wrath, pour out judgment on Jesus. It would be punished. It would be paid in full in him so that, so that it wouldn't be punished in me. So that if I would... I would trust that what Jesus Christ did was for me. If I would confess my sin, I would be saved. I mean, think that through. Meditate on that. Find joy in that. If you're, if you're not a Christ follower today, receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Understand that your sin is making a mess of everything. Realize that you have a God who created you, who loves you, who made you to know him. And that he made a way for, for your sin to be taken care of, for your sin to be forgiven, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not about behaving well. It's not about coming to church a bunch of times. There's no moralistic behavior that can get you closer to God. It doesn't work that way. We're so flawed. We are so broken. Only through Christ can we find redemption. Only through Christ can we be forgiven. Only through Christ will our pride be crushed. So again, the question that was posed at the very beginning of our time here this morning is this. Will you let God win the showdown with your pride? Will you do it? Or will you be like the religious leaders and harden your heart? Will you double down on your pride and your sin? Listen, I want to invite Sam out now and the team. We're going to have an opportunity here to respond physically to what the Holy Spirit might be doing in our hearts here today. And I don't know if you're used to this kind of thing, and I get it, it may be a little bit uncomfortable for us. We're a reserved culture in Canada. I get all of that. But listen, as I'm about to pray here in just a second, and as we sing, you're invited to just come forward to the front here on the carpet and just get down on your knees as an act of surrender to your God as an act of, hey, God, I've got pride in my life and I, and I, and I see a little bit of it here and, and I can't fix this, Lord. Would you, would you forgive me? Would you take it? Would you transform my life? And so listen, I will encourage and urge you, be bold in this. 
It doesn't matter what your neighbor does or doesn't do. It doesn't matter what, what somebody might think. It matters what your God thinks. And so we have right now an opportunity again to just humble our hearts, to get low before the Lord, to seek him. As I pray, you can come forward. God, we thank you for this opportunity, this chance now. to get our hearts right. Lord, forgive us for trying in our own strength, in our own might, to make ourselves healthy, to find in worldly things what can only be found in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for saying no to your Holy Spirit. Some of us, it's been for years Lord, I pray that today we would say yes. Lord, I pray that for those wrestling right now, God, break through. Lord, we only win when we let you win. I pray that we would see that here today. I pray that as we sing, I pray that as we pray, you would do a mighty work. Lord, it's in your power that we are made new, that we are changed, that we are transformed. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.